0: the University of Maryland Medical Center has successfully transplanted a gene-edited pig heart into a man named Dave Bennett. Bennett was not clear to be on the heart transplant waiting list and then opted for this very experimental procedure. The pig who gave his heart for this had 10 specific genes edited so that the body wouldn't reject the organ as easily, to help prevent blood from coagulating in the heart, and to keep the pig from growing too large. For more on this medical first and what it could mean for the future, We'll speak to Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today.
1: This is work that's been in development actively for 20 years plus and very active for the last couple of years. And what they've been doing is editing these pigs to take out. uh, We have species barriers, so there's a reason, you know, we don't. The species. Um, if if you gave me a pig heart, a normal pig heart, my body would re- immediately reject it. So what they've done is taken out some of the genes that cause that immediate rejection, um, and so the the human body can accept the pig heart. The potential here is uh, right now a number. A lot of people die while waiting for organs. Hearts are one. Kidneys, especially. Um, there are 110,000 people almost on the wait list for organs in the U.S., and I think 60 percent, more than half of them are for kidneys, um, and many people do die. And those are people who make it on the list. So Mr. Bennett, who, who had the surgery in Maryland, um, wasn't even on the list. He didn't qualify, which is why he agreed to volunteer for this test.
0: Let's talk about Mr. Bennett and his case before we get into some of the other cool science stuff related to this. So, the first question you kind of mentioned there he wasn't, he was rejected for a heart transplant. Why wasn't he able to get a traditional heart transplant in the first place?
1: So it's actually hard to get on the transplant list because it's such a limited resource. They really restrict it to people who they think are going to do well with the transplant. Mr. Bennett apparently in his past had not always followed medical recommendations, missed medical appointments, didn't fill prescriptions, that sort of thing. And though it seems minor and happens to all of us, that's enough to get you knocked off the heart transplant list.
0: Wow. <laughs> so so not following yeah. the doctor's orders, you know, yeah. really matters. I mean, especially in these cases like this, right? I mean, they're not going to go through all the trouble if uh, it's going to fizzle out and it's not going to work. So I, I, that totally makes sense. What was wrong with his heart to begin with that he needed this?
1: So it's not entirely clear. His, he has a family history. Um, his Both of his parents died fairly young. He had a sister who died young. Um, so there is definitely a family history there. He had a valve replacement about nine years ago, so he'd had existing heart disease, um, and then he was okay until October when he started to have severe chest pains, went into Maryland in November, uh, into the hospital in Baltimore there, and, and has been there ever since. Um, and so in addition to not being a good transplant candidate, he wasn't a good candidate for a mechanical heart, apparently because he didn't have a good heart rhythm. It was very irregular. And I guess you need a regular heartbeat in order for a mechanical heart to to help.
0: Now, all of this moved very quickly because as you mentioned, he had the chest pains in October, by December, they were getting ready for this. And, uh, you know, it just happened a few days ago, really this whole thing. So it all happened very quickly. What was all of that process like? Because there's a lot of clearances you need to get from the FDA, all sorts of things in order for something like this to even happen.
1: Right. And they're huge bureaucratic hurdles. And it's kind of the miracle almost uh, beyond the actual surgery was that they got through the bureaucracy that quickly. Um, They needed three separate approvals from the FDA. There were three sort of innovations as part of this. One was the gene edited pig. Another was the medication that they give him to keep him from rejecting the organ um, they, they've used a, a different protocol for this pig organ than they would normally use for a human-to-human heart transplant. And the third was the box they put the heart in. Um, between taking it out of the pig and putting it into the person, they wanted to keep it perfused. It's called keep, it liquid, keep liquid pumping through it. Um, apparently, with a human heart, it can last on ice for a little while. But the pig heart has not been doing well unless they kept it um, full of liquid continuously. And so they created the, the, the people who made, who gene edited the pig have, have come up with this perfusion box that keeps the heart um, healthier until it can be implanted into a person and all of those required separate approvals. So yeah, there were a lot of sleepless nights between December 15th when they first thought about this and, uh, uh Christmas, uh, Sorry, new year's Eve, December 31st, they got their FDA approvals and then took another week before they did the surgery on Friday.
0: Talking about the box that they put the heart in, right? That was only discovered because they've already been doing these type of transplants into baboons. And they were finding right. out that the heart, if you put it on ice, it just wasn't lasting good enough. Uh, you know, So just out of that whole experimentation process, they figured out that this was the best way to go for that
1: exactly and and they um that's where the immune protocol came from also the the suppression, immune suppression the regular stuff they use in people wasn't working on the baboons they tried a different one and it did work and so um that's that's how they came up with with this approach so um and they've managed to keep baboons alive for this team in maryland has kept them alive for nine months uh, after transplant they don't uh, communicate nearly as well as the patient as a patient does
0: Now, how is Mr. Bennett doing now from all of this? Obviously, we heard that he's doing well. He's obviously awake and things are pumping. But how does it look so far?
1: So um, I haven't spoken to him or seen him yet, but apparently he is doing very well. He's off the ECMO machine, the machine that was pumping his blood for him. Um, So the the pig heart is doing all the pumping uh, on for him um, he's off the ventilator so presumably he will be um, you know able to talk pretty soon if he can't already um, and then the next hurdle will be getting him out of bed and getting him um, getting some physical strength back he's been literally flat on his back for two months at least so um, he's very deconditioned as they call it you know he's, he's, he's in terrible physical shape and he's got to work on that and that's a lot of work and that's part of why they want to make sure that somebody is going to be compliant um, because it does take a lot of work to come back from a transplant
0: from some of the doctors that have spoken to him, I guess he's very optimistic, right? He says that he hopes he can still get a human heart. Uh, you know, maybe this could just be a bridge for him right now.
1: Right. So that's one of the possibilities of using these pig organs as bridges to human organs till till, um, till another organ can become available. Um, so, yeah, that's he, he. I guess, uh, as anybody would, would rather have a human heart than a pig heart. <laughs>
0: right. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about the pig specifically. This pig comes from Virginia. And as we mentioned, it was genetically modified in 10 different spots. So they have, you know, uh, 100,000 genes, I guess you can use to modify. They only had to do this with 10. And so what did that look like?
1: So they want to do the, the, the fewest possible genes because they want a healthy pig, obviously. Um, and so three of them are related to this immediate immune rejection that, again, the, the human body would would normally immediately recognize, hey, this thing doesn't belong here, and reject it. So three of them involve that. Things they figured out with the baboon, again, things that, that would prevent rejection. Um, one of them is to prevent growth. So one of the things they learn in the baboon, they put... Um, an adolescent pig heart into a baboon. And it was the right size when they put it in and the heart kept growing. And so they realized that they had to stop the growth of this, um, of the heart. So in Germany, they're using smaller pigs. Uh, In Virginia, they've taken out a growth hormone gene in order to keep the the pigs smaller so the heart won't get too big.
0: These pigs that have been provided for a lot of this stuff, these companies are specifically breeding these pigs for organ transplants and all that because you did make mention too in the article you know that there are animal rights activists that aren't really happy with this kind of thing
1: no there are a lot of people who are very upset about this Um, you know why are we prioritizing a human life over over an animal Um, and, and there are other ethical issues that come up as well Um, I think the ethicists I've spoken to say they feel okay with it. We kill hundreds of millions of pigs a year to eat them. Um, So we're already prioritizing people over pigs in that sense. Um, But but this does really raise some ethical questions, and that's why I think it's important for, for people to know about it and talk about it.
0: Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. For the first time in nearly 50 years, The number of dialysis patients shrunk, not because more people were healthy, but because COVID struck. People with kidney failure and the associated illnesses are more prone to severe infection, but many people also neglected getting their treatments during the pandemic. And despite dialysis centers implementing COVID precautions, some facilities didn't follow their own infection control policies. Dialysis patients were the pandemic's perfect victims, and very few people took notice. For more on all this, we'll speak to Dua Eldeb reporter at ProPublica.
2: You know, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of people were able to delay care. You know, they didn't go into the hospital for elective procedures. They didn't leave their homes if they could help it, but dialysis patients just didn't have that option. So for people, you know, when I started, like I said, I didn't know much about dialysis, but basically these are patients who have end-stage renal disease, which means that their kidneys are so damaged, they can't filter the toxins in their blood. So they have to go be on like a dialysis, have a dialysis machine actually clear their blood, cleanse their blood from those toxins. And most patients who go to a facility and most dialysis patients do in-center dialysis you know, have to go there three times a week, and they stay for three to four hours. And a lot of patients take public transportation, some kind of medical van transportation, you know, get there, they go with strangers. And once they're there, they're there with multiple people in a large room, so they can't self-isolate. And they were doing this three times a week at the very beginning of the pandemic, and they're already immunocompromised because of their end-stage renal disease. So it's just multiple layers of risk for these people who are just trying to get this life-saving treatment. One of the stats that really shocked me when I saw it was that the rate of COVID hospitalizations of dialysis patients early on the pandemic was 40 times higher than the general population. I think that there tells you all you need to know about how risky it was.
0: Yeah. You know, I actually have a friend who was a nurse in a dialysis center and a lot of the stories that we would talk about ring perfectly true and in accordance with what you wrote in your article and just kind of the difficulty, you know, you were talking about the treatment and how they have to report three times a week to get their treatments and all. And one of the big results is a lot of people started dropping off. They started skipping their treatments, uh, because of the difficulties you laid out, right? Um, you know, the transportation, having to sit around with a bunch of people. And that was one of the main things that that my friend saw and he would tell me about, too, just dropouts. People who just wouldn't report. And then, you know, they come in a few days later, a few days late, and they're doing really bad at that point.
2: You know why this treatment is just such a life-saving treatment is because they have to get it. They can't go. These patients, you know, can't miss more than two or three sessions, you know, sometimes even one session before things turn really bad, before the fluid builds up in their body, before the toxins take over. And so, you know, I I ran earlier in the year about how the pandemic had really affected cancer screening and cancer diagnoses, and people were delaying going to get their, you know, annual mammograms or just their regular checkup for cancer. And that was devastating. The national organization that tracks cancer health was expecting an increase over the next decade of 10,000 excess deaths because of people who had delayed care and who weren't coming in to get their screenings. What the dialysis population saw was an increase of 18,000 deaths just last year alone in excess deaths. So deaths that they weren't expecting because of the pandemic. And like you said, a big part of that was they weren't able to go and they were too afraid of going in and, and contracting the, the virus. There was one story that a doctor told me in California that just broke my heart. It was a you know an older patient who went to the hospital because he had difficulty breathing. Doctors diagnosed him with end-stage renal disease and they said, look, like you need to come in for dialysis three times a week, and he was really hesitant, but once he realized that this is what's gonna save his life, he agreed. But his wife was also at home and she had cancer. He was taking care of her and he was so afraid to leave her, so afraid to get COVID and come back and give it to her that he would skip his treatments once and then twice. And then finally, you know, he skipped it too many times that he died.
0: You know, one of the things that you explore in the article is about how few people really took notice of what was happening to these dialysis patients. Obviously, everybody was concerned with a lot of other stuff. You know, we're in this pandemic a few years now. So now we have some data that's built up and we can kind of go back and see what was happening. But one of the things that really impacted a lot of this, too, was the effect on the facilities themselves. You know, investigations by the federal government dropped, you know, a lot of personnel issues, you know, uh, delays because of the pandemic. You know, I, I get all that stuff. But there's, you know, a lot of complaints that were happening at these facilities, inspections were going down, lack of funding, you know, all of this stuff kind of contributed to this.
2: You're right again. I mean, and I think that's something that like, you know, we haven't really focused on. And when you look at these facilities, you know, I will say that what I heard over and over is that dialysis facilities were quick to mask and to screen patients. They put in kind of screening and isolation protocols early on in the pandemic so that people who were suspected or confirmed to have COVID were treated in, you know, either a separate shift or, you know, a a specially designated clinic just for these. But there were still some facilities that didn't follow their own infection control policies. You know, they weren't washing their hands properly. They weren't keeping workers home and sick. They weren't disinfecting equipment. And those are just the facilities that we know about. But like you said, you know, the federal officials are behind on their inspection. So they're two years overdue on more than 5,000 inspections at dialysis facilities. They're three years behind on more than 3,000. And what we found is that since the start of last year, the number of inspections across the board at dialysis facilities fell by 30%. So it just makes you wonder, what else do we not know?
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, going back to my friend who who's a nurse at a dialysis center, you know, he would talk to me about some of the difficulties they had too in following some of those policies, even for the patients themselves, right? You know, mask wearing is mandatory, but you know, they get uncomfortable and when you're sitting there getting dialysis for a few hours, it's tough. And so he'd say, you know, sometimes uh, patients would take their masks off, sometimes they'd show up sick, and you know, then they'd have to go through that process of refusing them care. You know, they'd have to report to a hospital so they can get their Treatments, so you know, just stories of how difficult it was to navigate all that. And so, the next question is, how do we fix a lot of this stuff? We spend a lot of federal money on this through Medicare. The spending is, you know, is very high in all this stuff. But what do we? What are they looking for to to how to remedy some of these things?
2: That's a great question. I wish I had an answer to. Yeah, I mean, Medicare spends, you know, more than fifty billion dollars. On patients with end-stage renal disease, uh, it's an outsized portion of, of their budget, but we're still having so much death, so much illness, and you know, a lot of dialysis patients, you know, they they basically are on dialysis until you know their hope is to get a kidney transplant but that's only 30% of the total ESRD population. Patients with end-stage renal disease were able to get a kidney transplant. And, you know, one of the problems, one of the main problems is racial disparities. You see that in who is more likely to advance to end-stage renal disease, who is less likely to get a transplant, who is less likely to even be on home dialysis. And, you know, as I'm sure you can guess, these are, you know, Patients of color, black patients, Latino patients are the ones who are less likely time and time again. So I think, you know, it starts with addressing those disparities. One of the kind of beacons of hope that I'm hearing from people is home dialysis. Which isn't, you know, it's, you know, by no means easy, but it is at least, you know, what I'm hearing kind of a hopefully a more convenient way for patients to receive dialysis. A lot of them can receive it at home while they're sleeping. But again, the disparities there are really bad. And so federal officials are trying to address that. They're trying to increase reimbursement. They passed an initiative, you know, back in 2019 to try to address this. So I mean I think that's that's something on the board that they're working toward but it's going to take time. I think you know more immediately especially with you know the new variant is boosters one of the epidemiologists that I spoke to was saying that you know he really hopes that if another round of boosters are approved that dialysis patients are prioritized because when the first you know vaccines Came out. It took three months before they were delivered to dialysis facilities. And that's where, like we said, right. patients are going three times a week. So if you want to get them boosted, take it to their places of treatment. Right. So I think that's something to, to consider as well.
0: Yeah, well, we're going to be hearing a lot more of these types of things as we keep progressing through the pandemic. We get more data about what happened during all this time. And as you mentioned, few people were really noticing what was happening here in this situation. So I suggest everybody read Dua's piece. There's a lot of details in there. We couldn't get to Dua LD reporter at ProPublica. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you for caring about this issue and for having me on.
0: That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out the daily dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at daily dive pod on Twitter and daily dive podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment. Give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow the Daily Dive and iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of the Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.